sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit Epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Can you tell me what these songs have in common? The answer should tell you the theme of today's show. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a neurologist who practices at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. This is What's Health Got to Do With It, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. First, the answer to our musical quiz and in order. Quarter flashes harden my heart. The Bee Gees, how do you mend a broken heart? Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On. Neil Young's Heart of Gold, and Patsy Cline's Cheatin' Heart. If you guessed Heart is in the title of each of these hit songs, then you guessed correctly, and it shouldn't be too hard to figure out the theme of today's show either. It's our Valentine's Healthcare Show. Then later, Never Too Late, Your Guide to Save Sex After 60, a provocative new book by Dr. Shannon Dowler. But first... February is American Heart Month, a time when everyone should focus on their cardiovascular health. So we're devoting the show to that topic. And if you have questions regarding heart health, then this show is for you. Joining us are a husband and wife cardiology medical team, Drs. Amy and Peter Pollock. Both are practicing cardiologists at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, Dr. Amy Pollock, welcome. Dr. Peter Pollock, welcome. I'd say Dr. Pollock, but I knew I'd get both of you at the same time. But welcome uh, to our program. Oh, thanks so much for having us. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you both on. Let's get right into the heart of our interview. We are talking about heart health. So let's start off by defining some commonly used terms. So, um, Dr. Uh, I'll just have to use first names in this case. Uh, Amy, uh, what is heart disease or what? I know that sounds like it's self-evident, but can you explain how it's defined and what the types of heart disease are? Well, I'm so glad you're asking this question because it is so important to understand what do we really mean when we're talking about heart disease? And and to your point, this is really kind of a general umbrella term that can refer to many different types of involvement with the heart. Anything from coronary artery disease, which is you know a, a blood vessel issue, uh, to uh, uh, 
congestive heart failure, which is a heart pumping function problem, could be electrical or arrhythmia, could be related to the heart valves with a leaky valve or a narrowed stenotic valve, and it could be related to the actual structure of the heart muscle or that pericardium, the lining around the, the heart. So heart disease really is a general term in that reflects any kind of involvement related to the heart. Peter, according to the CDC, the heart disease is the leading cause of death in the United States. The statistics that are printed there is that one person dies every 34 seconds in the U.S. from cardiovascular disease. Why is it so prevalent? Why is it so common? Yeah, I think it's a wonderful question, and it's so important to the work we're trying to do and, and the message to get out about the the high prevalence of heart disease. It is predominantly age-related, and everybody has a heart. So, you know, heart disease will become more and more prevalent in the older population. But beyond that, we're always trying to do what we can to identify heart disease earlier, treat it, manage it, prevent what we can prevent. So not all heart disease is preventable and and success isn't preventing anyone from ever developing heart disease but to help people live the most active life with their heart disease and to prevent what we can to, to push off heart disease as late as we can in life dr amy let's get also back into other terms one of the most common terms that every layperson uses is the term of heart attack when you hear that, what does that mean to you or what does that mean medically? Absolutely. So, you know, a, a heart attack is when you have an abrupt cutoff of blood flow down one of the coronary arteries to the heart muscle itself. And that part of the heart muscle supplied by that blood vessel is then starved for blood and oxygen and can, can actually um, have an infarction or a, a heart attack where that part of the heart muscle becomes scarred. And as, as Dr. Peter Pollack was um, starting to talk about, you can have heart attacks from cholesterol-related issues or from sometimes not related to, to cholesterol, something called a, a spontaneous coronary artery dissection. So heart attack is when there's an abrupt cutoff of blood flow to the heart muscle, and there's more than one way that can happen. Dr. Peter, let, let me go to the other term that's very uh, commonly used, and that's heart failure. What does that mean? Yeah, so heart failure occurs from a change in the body when the heart is not pumping enough blood out to the kidneys, and the kidneys respond by retaining fluid. So it's really the retention of fluid, and that changes how we feel our breathing, and we feel short of breath. So fluid retention, shortness of breath is that heart failure syndrome. It is most clearly explained with folks who have a reduced pumping function of their heart. So the heart's not pumping enough blood out to their kidneys. Their kidneys respond by trying to increase their blood volume and retain fluid. So then folks get trouble with swelling and shortness of breath. It can also happen in uh, people and patients with normal pumping function, but they have the same kind of fluid retention, shortness of breath syndrome. Amy, one more question of definition for us. We also hear a lot about coronary heart disease. Can you define that for us? Yeah, so that coronary heart disease is really kind of honing in on the type of heart disease that's related to specifically to the coronary arteries. And this can be anything from somebody who's had um, had cholesterol buildup and narrowing that they needed to have a stent placed or they needed bypass surgery or they're having their coronary heart disease medically managed with um, cholesterol medications, sometimes antiplatelet agents, other uh, drugs we use to help improve blood flow to the heart, and then even something called microvascular ischemia, where if you think about the coronary arteries that supply the heart as being like those main 
tree branches that come off the trunk of the tree, then as those branches divide to smaller and smaller branches, kind of out by where the leaves would be with this metaphor, that's along the lines of what the microvasculature looks like. And, and we've learned over many years that um, women in particular, but also men can have symptoms related to microvascular uh, ischemia or angina, and that can also be related to risk of, of heart attack. Got it. Peter, one of the biggest questions uh, that people ask these days is that we are in a transition from pandemic to endemic with regards to COVID and and issues with heart and COVID and vaccines and the disease have all swirled around for the past three years. I'll ask this real simply. How do you think COVID impacted heart health? Well, of course, it's a complex issue and and it's been uh the covid pandemic was was radically politicized i think sticking to as much of the the science as we can we, we have seen impacts of uh covid on heart health and we have seen uh, patients who have recovered from covid have increased cardiovascular problems over the year after their infection and so it has raised a lot of awareness and has raised a lot of questions about the interplay of the COVID infection and the heart. Clearly, there is some effect that the virus and the vaccine can have, although quite rarely on the heart muscle. This leaves, I think, many patients with concerns because so many patients and so many people have had COVID around the country and around the world. and. Heart disease is also very prevalent and, and heart symptoms can be very prevalent. It leaves a lot of questions about whether someone's COVID played into their heart condition uh, or not. And so I think it's raised more questions than there are answers right now. Amy, we started the show talking about the high statistics for cardiovascular disease overall. But I'm curious, what what is the curve looking like? Uh, what is the overall state? Are we at a place where cardiovascular diseases are rising, they're declining, or they're just stuck, if you will, at the same high levels that they've always been? Well, it's a really good question. And, and, you know, there's a couple ways to look at it. You know, first, if we look at trends from 2010 to 2020, there's certainly been a continued growth in individuals who are suffering from cardiac disease. You know, we know that um, that COVID influences patients even long after they've had the disease, about a year afterwards. And, and so I, I think that those kind of longer impacts we still need to understand um, as we think about patients who weren't going in for um, routine cardiovascular care during the early days of the pandemic, and um, you know, people weren't exercising as much. So there are a lot of recent confounders. However, there's certainly been a trend from 2010 to 2020. Got it. Uh, Peter, one of the other big issues that has come up uh, over the past three years have been health disparity issues. And this is also very true amongst ethnic groups, particularly, uh, and racial groups, Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, things of that sort. Can you comment on where we are with heart health disparities, particularly among Black Americans? Certainly. And it is, uh, of course, a a delicate issue and an important one to to discuss openly. I think one of the things that that Amy was, was getting at was all of the risk factors. For heart disease continue to increase. So we're in the midst of a diabetes epidemic, an epidemic of hypertension, of obesity, and those share into the health disparities. So there's a discrepancy in the risk factors that lead to heart disease as well as in heart disease itself. And I think they reflect discrepancies that are systemic in access to healthcare, in access to those things that lead to or contribute to um, the risk factors for health. So access to nutritious food, understanding of nutritious food. We, we talk about food deserts, you know, areas um, 
where you just can't get fresh fruit and vegetables. They, they aren't readily available. And these are foundational and understanding the importance of eating a, a, a healthy diet are foundational to the risk factors that, that lead to heart disease. And so there are discrepancies on many levels. And these have ripple effects that are seen in discrepancies in heart disease along racial and, and socioeconomic lines. Amy, how do you think we can ever tackle these things? I mean, that I know that's almost an unfair question, but any overall thoughts as to, you know, how, how we ever move the needle on that topic? Well, I think, first of all, this is such a critical topic to be talking about. And, and I think that there is a really well-written scientific statement about race, racism and cardiovascular health that was published last year um, in one of the circulation journals. And for anyone who's who's listening, I would highly encourage reading this because it, it really highlights um, using a racial equity lens um, with a kind of comprehensive social determinants of health framework. Because we we need to um, as a as a nation as communities to really explore some of the the elements of structural racism and as a contributor and a driver to some of these disparities in cardiovascular disease because as Peter really nicely laid out there's the social economic and environmental conditions that all factor into these social determinants of health that really play um, critical roles in what we see with these higher rates of both all-cause and cardiovascular mortality in Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, and um, American Indian populations. Uh, so to your point, there's there's no one um, you know, quick fix, certainly, by any means. But I think the first step is really um, integrating this into our kind of day-to-day discussions as we think about how to, to, to tackle these really deeply rooted um, problems as a society. And to all of our listeners, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJZT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servan. If you're just joining us, it's our Heart Health Show, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at Jay Servan. Besides Valentine's Day, it is also Super Bowl Sunday. Damar Hamlin, a safety for the Buffalo Bills, made headlines when in week 17 he suffered a cardiac arrest after a hit in the game. He survived because of CPR and defibrillation. He's now launched a CPR awareness campaign. Peter, in your best layman's term, can you explain to all of us, now that we're a few weeks out, what happened to him that day? Well, I have to make the the, the caveat that I was not involved in his care team, and I don't know specifically about his case. But, you know, this seems to be a case of what many are calling commodio cortis. Commodio cortis uh, is an interesting thing that's been recognized since the 1800s. Um, and it's when when we compress the heart, we see this with CPR, um, mechanical action on the heart causes electrical activity. And so if a percussion happens to the chest wall that is strong enough to percuss the heart, that mechanical effect on the heart can cause enough electrical activity. And if it happens to be in the exact right time in the cardiac cycle, it can lead to a life-threatening arrhythmia called ventricular fibrillation. Now, the number of things that have to line up here are are pretty extreme, which is why even DeMar Hamlin had been hit many times as a football player. And we see football games every Sunday, hundreds, thousands, millions of folks have a percussive effect to their chest um, and, and do not have this this effect. So it, it does beg the question, why did that happen that time? Um, and, you know, there have been questions raised about, does this mean there was something else underlying about his heart that increases the risk of the arrhythmia? I think the messages to to leave the audience with that I think are important are one, this phenomenon which has been described is not completely understood. Why does it happen in the individuals that it does happen in? 
it's most common in baseball and hockey when you're hit with a ball or a puck. Right. Um, it's fairly uncommon in football, which is why we don't see it much. It made that so much more dramatic. Dramatic, and I think so. This occurrence does not make football less safe from that perspective at all, and it's not something that folks should worry about because we're aware of it. But sudden death does happen, and it can happen at sporting events. Uh, less for this reason than than other conditions, and CPR can save lives. And I think that's the real message that that folks should go home with is that everybody can know how to do CPR. You can learn while you're walking through the airport. Right. Um, you can learn online, and I think that's part of the the message he's trying to get out there, so that you can save someone's life when you see this happen. And I think the big change that's happened and CPR over the last uh, several years is uh, we got rid of the need to do the rescue breathing because compressing someone's chest both circulates blood and their lungs are in the chest too. So it's compressing their lungs. It's moving air in and out of their lungs, breathing for them as long as we can tilt their head a little bit gently and and make sure their airways open. Um, But compression only CPR can save lives. And there was a recognized occurrence where where patients weren't getting bystander CPR because you don't want to put your mouth on a stranger's mouth. Right. And, and that reluctance was was keeping uh, bystander from from doing that life saving CPR. So those are the messages I think to take away from from the from the Dahar Hamlin. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, and you know, to those Buffalo Bills fans, I'm sorry they did not make it into the Super Bowl uh, at this point. Amy, one uh, additional question on this topic. You know, uh, they had an automated external defibrillator right there on the field. Is this something that is found everywhere? Uh, should they be everywhere? Well, you know, gosh, there is a huge role for the automated external defibrillators. And, and when we think about um, just the what the American Heart Association highlights as the six links in the chain of survival when somebody has an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. The first three are ones that we can, really anybody could participate in that, as Peter said, to help save someone's life. The first one is recognizing that somebody either had a cardiac arrest or may have, where you activate that emergency response system, you know, calling 911. And that second one is, as Peter said, is that early CPR with the emphasis on the chest compressions. And then that third part is where the idea of the AED comes in, that rapid defibrillation. And then the the other three have more to do with the healthcare providers getting on the scene. Um, so there are often AEDs, um, the external defibrillators, you know, in airports, in schools, uh, in many buildings. And um, and I believe that Peter has a, a website where there's even a um, uh, kind of a map of where there are AEDs oh. that are will show you in your community. Is that right? Yep. There, there's a, how do you find that? There's an app for that, right? So um, <laughs> this is the Pulse Point app, and I, I have no relation with them, but this is an app that's worked to map out the closest AED. And so, wow. as Amy and I want to amplify that that you know. Someone needs to call 911 to get EMS started so that the the emergency medical services can be on the way. And then, you know, finding an AED, it, it, you know, we people talk about drones bringing these things. That sounds a little futuristic right now, but there are a lot out there. And if there's one a block away that someone can bring, they'll probably beat the ambulance there. Um, these things are now very good at what they do. They're very easy to put on. I think that, you know, it can be intimidating to think about doing CPR on a patient. But from a very basic standpoint, if you don't feel a pulse and you're not sure, you say, well, maybe I just aren't, I'm not good at feeling pulse. Well, if the patient's not moving, they're not responding, and they don't object to you pushing on their chest to start doing CPR, they probably need it. So I think that's, uh, you know, if you get EMS started, you can get someone to find this AED that, that may be close by, um, then these are ways that, that we can help po- folks live longer and live better because we can sur- help someone survive. Well, bystander CPR can save their brain. This is sure. going to mean something more to you, Joe, you know, that, that you survive, <laughs> oh, 
But if your brain is, is really badly affected, then, you know, we're trying to bring meaningful life back with this bystander CPR too. Love this app. And I'm going to look it up the moment that we, we, we do this show or complete this show. Amy, let me get on onto another topic, and that is um, the gender differences uh, when it comes to cardiovascular disease. I guess my, my simple question is kind of twofold. How are women faring with regards to cardiovascular health? And secondly, are women different than men when it comes to how they present with a problem? Well, I'm, I'm so glad we're talking about, about this um, because women do present um, or can present differently than men with regards to heart problems. And if we look at just the example of a, a, of a heart attack, um, so if you look at the symptoms that women are more likely to have when they're coming in with a, a, the real heart attack, you know, women um, are more likely to have shortness of breath, nausea, jaw or shoulder, back or arm discomfort, um, breaking out into a sweat, or sometimes even just a, a vague but deep sense that something is not well inside. And, and do women have chest pain or pressure as a sign of a heart attack? Absolutely. But about 40% of women who are having a heart attack will not complain of chest pain or pressure. It'll be one of those other symptoms. So that's where it is important to be on the lookout for kind of a, a new symptom, especially if it comes on quickly, you know, out of the blue, you're at rest and you're starting to have one of those symptoms. Uh, we need to make sure that it's it's not related to your heart. And, and so that I think is the first step, that awareness of the symptoms that women and men can present with a heart attack and then, you know, women, when you think about symptoms in their day-to-day -day lives, it may be that, um, that they're having shortness of breath or um, a fatigue as opposed to kind of chest pain as they're walking as a sign of a, of a blockage that's starting to become more severely narrowed. And as, as we touched on a little bit earlier, you know, women compared to men are more likely to have symptoms and even heart attacks related to the tiny blood vessels, the microvasculature. And then I, I mentioned at the very beginning, this idea that not all heart attacks are related to cholesterol buildup and narrowing. Um, that this idea that you could be young, healthy runner and have a tear in the lining of your coronary artery um, just out of the blue. So something called a spontaneous coronary artery dissection um, that interestingly enough seems to be tied in with um, other blood vessel involvement throughout the body related to something called FMD or mm -hmm. fibromuscular dysplasia. So I think even if you're you know, thinking, well, gosh, my cholesterol is great, I run half marathons, but have that abrupt onset of any of those warning symptoms without another good reason why, we take those symptoms really seriously and, and want to get it checked out. Peter, uh, what's the best advice to prevent heart disease that you advocate that's, I'll put it this way, that's actually doable? For regular folks, uh, it's it's one that often comes in. And briefly, if you could, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, uh, and I have to admit that I learned everything about prevention. So I'm an interventional cardiologist. I'm the guy that you end up seeing when prevention, you know, hasn't worked as well as we hope. <laughs> so I learned all this from from Amy, who's really masterful with with prevention, and and she points to me to the American Heart Association's uh, essential eight. And so these are in in order, you know, things that we generally know we ought to do, and it turns out they do impact your heart health. And there are things like eat better, right. be more active, don't smoke, get healthy sleep, don't hold your breath while you sleep, manage your weight, control your cholesterol, know what your cholesterol is. Just avoiding getting it checked isn't good management. Same for your blood sugar and your blood pressure. So you really should have these health screenings, be active, don't smoke, sleep, don't be overweight, and then you've done a lot to reduce your risk. You can't eliminate it, as we talked about at the top of the show, but you can modify your risk. You can live better, better and avoid a lot of, of heart disease. Amy, uh, I'm going to give you this uh, uh, last question. 
uh, what tests should any our listeners get yearly as part of screening for heart disease? So, you know, I think it ties into what Peter was talking about with those those elements of that life's essential eight. You know, we, we want to make sure that you, you're checking your blood pressure um, more than yearly, but that you're having a conversation with your healthcare uh, provider if it's something where your blood pressure is high, um, that you're getting your cholesterol checked, blood sugar level, um, you know, looking at your weight, uh, waist circumference, and then a physical exam. Um, and as part of that physical exam, you know, having your provider take a history about any family history of cardiovascular disease and any kind of warning symptoms that you may be having that there could be a sign related to your um, heart or blood vessels. And then the last part I, I would just tie in is that you know, February is heart month and gosh, as cardiologists, we are, are absolutely focused on the heart, but we need to remember that important tie-in with the other blood vessels in the body. So this idea of a heart-brain-leg connection, if we think about the blood vessels, the arteries that go to our brain with our risk of stroke, then the heart, and then tying it into the blood vessels that go down to our aorta and down to our legs that tie in with, with the risk of amputation and peripheral artery disease. So on that physical exam, making sure that someone's listening to your heart and checking your pulses in your feet, especially if you have a history of diabetes or tobacco use. Love the advice. Our director, Isabella De Silva, joins us now with questions for our experts from our listeners. Mr. Postman. Isabella, what do we have in the bag? Ken from Louisville, Kentucky. Can the experts comment on the safety of COVID vaccines and heart disease? What do we know now about COVID and heart conditions? Amy, do you want to take that one for, uh, to start us off? Sure. Well, it's, it's certainly a relevant question. And I think we that our understanding about risk of myocarditis or inflammation of the heart muscle or pericarditis, inflammation of the, the lining around the, um, the heart, the pericardium, has certainly evolved. And there was a, kind of been continually updates in this data. But the most recent data that I've seen is that when you look at the men ages 18 to 25, that seems to be at the, uh, the group that's at that higher risk of complications from the vaccine. That being said, it's still really low. So that, that rate uh, or incidence of myocarditis or pericarditis within seven days of getting um, the Moderna vaccine was essentially two individuals out of 100,000. Wow. So it's, it's certainly something that you see, but overall very low. That is helpful. I did not know is to that level that that helps to uh, explain that. Isabella, what else do we have in our mailbag? Anna from Austin, Texas. I am a busy mother with three kids. Sometimes the easiest thing to make for dinner is to stop at McDonald's or Raising Cane's for dinner, which they love. How bad is fast food for heart health? Am I hurting my kids? Peter, you want to take that uh, for for this, uh, for Anna? I I love McDonald's and I also love Raising Cane's, so so I'll, I'll go from there. Yeah, th- th- this is hard. And this is where advice and practicality, um, you know, and, and, and realities of life and, and, and life raising kids bump into one another, you know. Um, so, yes, <clears throat> the food from fast food is not, as a rule, heart healthy food. Now, a lot of fast food restaurants have recognized this and they try to bring out more heart healthier options. And so, it's valuable in your interest to be as as healthy for your kids as possible to look at kind of what are the options so a big mac is not as heart healthy as a salad both available from mcdonald's so i I think that looking at the sodium content the sugar content of these foods they're all published um, and, and doing some of the research on what are the healthier options as you're trying to make it through your day is the best advice Isabel, I think we have time for one more listener question. What do we have? Lizette from San Diego. My mother passed away recently from a heart attack on the exact one-year anniversary of my father's death. They had been married for 52 years. They were joined at the hip. Can you literally die from a broken heart? Amy, it's, a, it's a, an apropos listener question on a Valentine's uh, Bay show, but can you answer this for Lizette? 
Yes, and gosh, Lovette, I'm so sorry to hear about um, both your parents passing away and and what a tremendous legacy that they've left with being married for 52 years. And um, so, you know, the short answer is that that yes, folks can um, die from a, a broken heart in the sense that we know that stress increases the risk of having a heart attack um, is one way. There's actually um, something that had been called broken heart syndrome. It, this um, goes by a number of names, but kind of landed on something called stress cardiomyopathy, where you basically get this kind of stress hormone surge under periods of either emotional or physical stress that causes the heart muscle just to become suddenly very weak. Um, and then that idea of that dissection, that coronary dissection uh, can be triggered by, uh, by emotional stress. And then lastly, you know, when, when you've lost your soulmate, your love, you know, oftentimes folks understandably struggle with depression and not having somebody there to, to spur them on to, to, to cook or eat meals or go to doctor's visits. And, and so sometimes folks kind of um, just stop taking care of themselves as much. So there can be um, a number of, of reasons, but again, we're really sorry for your loss. We're going to let that be our last word. I want to thank you, Dr. Amy Pollock, and you, Dr. Peter Pollock, uh, for joining us, for all your wisdom and your terrific advice and uh, information today. We uh, we just can't thank you enough. Thank you for having us. This has been just a, a wonderful segment and um, really special to be part of this heart-healthy Valentine's Day um, with my Valentine, Dr. Peter Pollock. <laughs> Thanks so much. It's awesome to be here and awesome to be on with Amy. So it's it's wonderful. We've been talking to doctors Amy and Peter Pollock. They are a husband and wife cardiology team at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. And up next, safe sex after sixty. Doctor Shannon Dowler joins us to tell us what you need to know. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and this is What's Health Got to Do With It? Now, how can we have a Valentine's Day theme show and not talk about the elephant in the room? Sex. Now, sex isn't just for the young, as older adults can and do have sex lives well into their older ages. As our next guest tells us in the first chapter of her new book, Sex After 60, isn't just possible it's common. Thanks to no fear of pregnancy coupled with generic versions of medications that extend sexual function, sex hormones that help regulate hormonal changes, rise of senior communities, and folks retiring at an earlier age, and apps that let you find a companion right at your fingertips, to paraphrase our author, what can possibly go wrong? Well, Sexually transmitted diseases are increasing at exorbitant rates in older adults, something that was non-existent only a few decades ago. Given that no one talks about sex, especially between older adults, this sets everyone up for a very rude awakening. Dr. Shannon Dowler is a family physician who's here to give us all a sex education class. She's won numerous awards in her medical career and even created her own rap song on the topic. Her new book, published by Johns Hopkins Press, is Never Too Late, Your Guide to Safer Sex After 60. She joins us now from Asheville, North Carolina. Dr. Dowler, welcome to our program. Thanks so much for having me on today. We are delighted to have you on. Dr. Dollar, can you tell us what led you to focus on this area? Why did you write this book? Well, I've worked in the sexual health area for the last two decades. I started um, my first job out of residency in a health department working in an STD clinic, and I was exposed to a lot 
um, during medical school, during the AIDS epidemic. So I already had an interest in it and it was just fascinating. I would have a full day of seeing people coming in with interesting stories and interesting infections. And I guess it sort of stuck. Uh, what I've seen though over the last decade is that the average age of people coming into my STD clinic has gone up. It used to be a lot of teenagers and young adults. And I started seeing more and more 40 year olds and 50 year olds and 60 year olds. And one day I had somebody dragging their oxygen tank in behind them. And I thought, this is really interesting. There's something different is happening. I, I can only imagine as you, as you kind of frame it that way. I, I, you know, I was talking to our team as we were prepping for our conversation today and we all wondered is the reason that we're seeing this rise in sexually transmitted diseases in, in, in 60 years and older, is it because there's no place where they got their sex education from? Uh, is this literally a misgeneration of sex ed and this is what we're seeing? I think it's a couple different things. You have to remember this group of retirees now are the, the 1960s and 70s sexual revolution kids, right? They're the one that taught us about expanding our sexuality. They brought us the pill and contraception and pornography and masturbation and all those things. And so we should not be surprised that as they're aging, they continue to teach us things. At the same time, sex ed wasn't a fundamental part of the education system when they were going through. And even if it was, we have brand new infections now that many of them haven't ever heard of because they're new to us. They're even new to doctors as we discover new infections pretty consistently and regularly. One of the things that I find really terrific about how you communicate on this topic is, is even an example on your website, you list top five STDs and you order them in a certain way, the STD of the month and all that. How did you get the idea to kind of communicate this topic in that manner? Well, I've always been interested in doing things a little differently. And I had early influence by Shel Silverstein, who, who helped me really appreciate rhyme. And so for decades, I've been engaged in rap and limericks and other things as a way to educate people. I find that breaking down the taboo of sexuality is really important. A lot of people associate it, the learning about it with shame. And so if you can make it a little more fun, a little more lighthearted, how is this any different than having a cold or diabetes or something else, uh, then people are more likely to lean in and listen and not be afraid to talk about it or learn about it. And using humor is really an important way. My, my latest, I have two rap videos and then I just redid a little grandma got run over by a reindeer to grandma got infected by a virus. And it's a, <laughs> it's a sad story of grandma swiping right on Christmas Eve and getting herpes. Grandma got infected with a virus Having sex with Fred on Christmas Eve You may think there's no such thing as herpes But as for Fred and Grandma, they believe I, I don't think I have any words for that, but uh, I, that, that's fantastic. Dr. Dollar, you know, one of the things that often people talk about with STDs, okay, you get treatment, you get an antibiotic, or you get something managed. I guess my question is, how do sexually transmitted diseases impair or impact someone's life? I mean, can it kill you? So there's a, a whole spectrum of infections that just cause discomfort. Although I will say I've never had anybody come into my STD clinic, get a diagnosis and leave in a better mood than they arrived in. There's always some piece of physical discomfort, but also that emotional angst that comes with it of knowing you're gonna have to call partners and say, hey, you gave me something or hey, I may have given you something. So that emotional overlay on top of the physical experience is sometimes pretty unpleasant for people. But we know there are quite a few infections that you can actually die from. So even though we have great treatments with HIV now, it's a pretty significant drug regimen you have to take all the time. And as people age, that's more risk with other comorbidities and other health problems. But we've got the hepatitises that can kill you. We've also got this increasing number of people with head and neck cancers from the human papillomavirus, which is essentially a sexually transmitted infection that many of them got 20, 30, 40 years ago, and now it's causing cancers. So some of these infections have really significant um, implications in people's lives. What's your best advice to help prevent STDs or safer sex after 60? What's the, what's, if you had to kind of encapsulate it, I'm sure there's more than one, but what's the best advice you have in that situation? 
so I probably have a piece of advice for people and for doctors. Um, so my advice for doctors is don't assume everybody over the age of 60 is asexual. We know that older adults are sexually active more than ever before. I saw a 2021 study that said 10% of people over the age of 90 remain sexually active and 46% of people over the age of 60. So a lot of people remain sexually active. We in healthcare sometimes make assumptions about sexuality that are not accurate. Um, for patients, I think the most important thing is dialogue, talking to your partners. What are your risks? When have you been tested? Talking about your own experience and what you may have had. Without that conversation, people are less likely to reach for a condom to use protection or go get the testing that they need. It's really, really important that people are comfortable with whatever the degree of sexuality they're engaged in, whether they're swiping right and hooking up on the regular or they're in a long-term monogamous or they really just want a good friend and not intimacy in a sexual way. Having those open lines of communication both with their partners and with their healthcare providers is really important. What do you think is the biggest misconception folks have in general, not about STDs, but about sex after 60? I think people assume that older adults are asexual. Um, I'm not sure why they assume that because my clinical life tells me that it's very inaccurate. Um, but there's maybe they just don't want to think about their parents or grandparents being intimate, but people just assume that it's the rare person who remains sexually active when in fact it really is not. It's very common. It's very healthy. And actually we see that it's actually an indicator of your overall healthiness, the ability to remain sexually active and to be satisfied with your sex life. So there's, there's this need to sort of turn the story around and say, hey, let's celebrate this. We should all be so lucky that when we're 80, we have a great sex life, right? That's great for everybody involved. But while we're celebrating someone's sexuality at 80, let's also make sure we're doing everything we can to keep them healthy and safe and to keep them from sharing infections with other people. You know, uh, your book is, uh, is amazing because it just has so much helpful, practical advice. What other resources are there for people to find out more about Sex After 60 besides uh, the book that you've just written, which is terrific? You know, so I, I joke about this a lot. Um, I am not a sex therapist. I'm the person people come to when they've already successfully had sex. So I'm the one that they come to when they've got the infection or they're concerned about an infection or something else. A lot of people have physical challenges, um, emotional challenges, other things that impact their sexuality later in life based on maybe they're a cancer survivor and maybe they can't take the hormones that might help them have a more pleasant sexual experience. So it's really, really important that folks are talking to their primary care providers and really having open conversations about their, their unmet needs as far as their sexuality. I think that's a, a really important resource and one that's not used often enough. And then there's a, there are a lot of books out there written by sex therapists about later in life, healthy sexuality. And so don't be afraid to go buy those books. You read about it and learn about it so that you're having the best experience possible. I know this book, your book, is geared to folks 60 years and over. I'm curious, is it a good resource for people of any age who want to learn more about this topic? I really think it is. I made my husband read it. He was not impressed. Um, he was sitting he was sitting by the fire a few days ago, um, and he said, trick a bonus. Huh, I learned something reading this book. And so, it, yes, there is something for everybody. I see a lot of young people still in the STD clinic, and I cannot tell you how often they have no idea what I'm talking about when I say they have something, a specific infection. There's a lot to keep up with. A lot of the times that sex ed people got in the schools was not necessarily taught by a physician. So this is actually a great resource for everybody. So I say, if you're aging and you want to be sexually active, or maybe you know somebody who's aging and you want to be a good resource for them, um, that's okay too. Yeah, I think this book actually has great content for pretty much anybody that's interested in staying, staying safe um, and having a healthy sex life. Dr. Dollar, what take-home message do you want to make sure that our listener um, and listeners out there take home from just your book and our interview? What, what would be that take-home message you wish to leave with them? 
I really want people to be comfortable talking about, learning about, reading about, um, and experiencing later life sexuality. And so don't be afraid to buy the book and order the book, even though it has the word sex on the cover. Um, how do, we've just got to destigmatize this and make this as routine and normal as when you have to go to the doctor because you got a tick bite while you were hiking. So many important things we need to do to keep people healthy and safe, um, and we should not be ashamed of our sexuality. Dr. Dollar, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if if folks, uh, where can they find the book? Is it on uh, every vendor or is there a website that connects to this that if they want to get more information from you as well? Yeah, it's pretty much sold wherever books are sold. There's also a version of it on Audible, um, which is fun as well because I get to read the book. And so you get to hear me tell the stories. Um, and then you can go to my website, shannondowlermd.com, and that links to all the different places if you want to order it from an independent bookstore versus uh, Amazon or something like that. Dr. Dollar, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a terrific uh, discussion and conversation with you. I've really enjoyed it. Well, thanks for talking about it. I really appreciate it. We've been talking to Dr. Shannon Dowler. She is author of a terrific new book called Never Too Late. Your Guide to Safer Sex After 60. It's put out by Johns Hopkins Press. Well, that's our program for today. We leave you with the Linda Ronstadt Valentine song recently featured in The Last of Us. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Heather Schatz is our senior producer. Brendan Rivers is our producer. Isabella De Silva is our director. Next week's program is how our microbiome relates to cancer. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at jserven. I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening. Happy Valentine's, and stay in touch. For long, long time, cause I Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at American Brain Foundation. And by the Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today.